The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. I invite you to the book of Titus, chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 10 to verse 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. For one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the fouled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. It's good to be with you all. Good morning. Good morning. Situated here. As we just heard, we'll be in the book of Titus. So if you uh, missed your chance, uh, here's another one. Turn to the book of Titus. We'll be in chapter 1. We're going to uh, continue our second week here in this book, and uh, before we do so, let's just take a moment to pray. God, you are are very good. You're very kind to us, and Lord, we confess this morning that uh, we are uh, nothing but radical receivers of your grace. we, We don't come this morning... Uh, with anything to offer you that you don't already have. Uh, Lord, I, I, I come this morning as, as a man who is fragile and broken and uh, bringing nothing that, that you don't already have. But Lord, even in our feebleness, even in our weak knees and scrunched backs, Lord, I pray that you would use us. So this morning, God, would you move in power? Would you use a feeble sermon preached by a feeble man to make much of an unfeeble God? We want you this morning. I pray that we could have that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let me start by saying that I'm fairly sick. I've had a, my allergies are um, from the devil himself. And I'm learning that Kansas City is the worst place in the universe to live if you have allergies. And uh, they've been winning this week, and I have also developed a cough, so just bear with me. Thanks for the grace on that. So uh, two weeks ago, last week was Easter, two weeks ago, uh, we started the book of Titus. And Hedger preached a sermon. We ordained Sam as our pastor by the grace of God. And in that sermon, Hedger said uh, many, many helpful things. But there's one that I want to draw your attention back to that I think will kind of be the backbone for this series, for these uh, few chapters in the book of Titus. If you remember, Pastor Josh said that the book of Titus can really be helpfully read. It can could, it could really be helpfully broken down into three uh, easy categories. And it's these three things. Right pastors, right doctrine, and right practice. 
If you think about those three things, right pastors, right doctrine, right practice, it'll help you walk through this book. Everything, I'm not lying, no exaggeration, everything Paul writes to Titus in this letter is going to fall into one of those categories. He's either writing to develop healthy pastors, to develop healthy doctrine, or to develop healthy practice. And indeed, as you read this book, you see that all three of those things are intermingled together. Right pastors will preach right doctrine, and right doctrine will lead to right practice. Today, we are in the second one. Two weeks ago, we ordained Sam, and we looked at the qualifications of the elders, and we were in the first category, right pastors. Today, we're in the second one, right doctrine. Which means, then, that I get to talk to you about one of my greatest loves in life, theology. Now, before you write me off, hang on. Let me give you two caveats of what I'm talking about here about theology before we jump into why I think you should love theology and why, more importantly, Paul thinks you should love right doctrine and right theology. Two caveats. One, I don't want to assume that everyone in here knows what theology is. Uh, You know my story, a lot of you. I I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I became a Christian later in life, and the word theology was a very foreign concept to me for a long time. I think I heard it many, many times before I actually knew what it meant. So I don't want to assume that anyone in here knows what the word theology means. So let me give you a simple definition. The simple definition of theology is this, the study of God. That's it, the study of God. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about theology, is studying God. Therefore, literally, any statement about God is a theological one. If you say God is good, or God is grand, or God is in control, those are all theological statements, all of them. And also, if it's true that any statement about God is a theological one, then it must be true, hear me, that every single person, without exception, is a theologian. Everyone. Every single person. We all have thoughts on God. All of us. Even atheists are theologians. right? They have thoughts about God. Their thought just happens to be that He doesn't exist. The the, the idea that God doesn't exist is a theological idea. It's a theological construct. It happens to be a false one, but it is a theological one. So you are a theologian. Hear me, it's an old saying, but a true one. The question isn't whether or not you're going to be a theologian. The question is whether or not you're going to be a good one. That's the question. It's impossible to not be a theologian. So, caveat number one. Theology is the study of God, and you can't help but to be a theologian. Caveat two, I know that everyone doesn't feel the same way about the task of theology, and I want to address that. For many people, theology is a negative word. It's something to be weary of, something to be uh, kind of of, uh, not not, not close to, not, not familiar with. It's a word that doesn't bring love or joy, but weariness, concern, skepticism. I know that's true for even people in this room. For others, theology is a confusing word. It doesn't quite make sense. All of these constructs and ideas about doctrine and all these isms and ists and all these long words is just confusing more than it is helpful. I know that's true for a lot of people in this room as well. Even more for others, theology is a painful word. It literally brings pain. The the idea of doing theology, the task of theology, 
brings pain. And this is probably because most likely some of you have been hurt by an overzealous theologian wielding a sword too sharp and too big for his own good. It brings pain to you. And to most, theology just feels distant and cold. It's a way to trample on love, a way to trample on zeal, to trample on actual living out the Christian faith, and hide behind books, papers, thinking, intellect, and it has no impact on your daily life. These are very, very common understandings of theology. This is not hyperbolic. We don't have to look very hard for these. I bet you all of these are represented in this room, and in fact, I know they are. But hear me, this is not the type of theology that I want to talk about today, nor is it the type of theology that Paul ever had in mind as he's pinning most of the New Testament. I don't want to talk about the theology only for white-towered academia. I don't want to talk about theology that leads to cold, dead saints. I don't want to talk about theology that leads to domineering or abuse. I don't want to talk about theology that leads to hate instead of love. And to be frank, if theology ever leads to any of these endpoints, you're probably not dealing with theology, but rather dealing with deception. Theology doesn't lead to any of these places. No. I want to talk about a theology that is aimed at seeing God more clearly so that we can treasure him more dearly. I want to talk about a theology that leads to a white, hot zeal in the core of who you are for the person and work of Jesus Christ. A theology that drives us to count that everything this world has as loss for the, for the surpassing worth of actually knowing Jesus. I want to talk about a theology that gets out of God so big and so beautiful that he's so worthwhile that we would leave what we have and go to the ends of the earth to tell other people about him. I want to talk about a theology of a God that is so worthwhile, that he is so satisfactory, so good, so enough, that we are okay with being made little of so much as so much so that our God and our neighbors are being made much of. This is the kind of theology that we're talking about. This is the kind of theology that Paul is instructing Titus to pursue for the good of his people. Hear me, Christian. The task of thinking about God is an eternally important task. It could not be more important. It could not be more important, especially for us in 21st century America. This is a crucial, crucial task. So, let me tell you a little story before we jump into our text. I didn't always love theology. In fact, for a while, I hated it. Uh, Like I said, I was saved later in life. Uh, in high school at some time, I kind of got tricked into going to church for the first time where I heard the gospel and, and by the grace of God, believed. I uh, felt a call to ministry a couple years later and, and didn't really know what that looked like, but I had preached and I really liked to do that. So I wanted to keep doing that. And so I thought, preaching's kind of fun. I'll be a pastor then. So I went to college. I uh, went to Southwest Baptist University in Southwest Missouri. And uh, w- w- let me say this. When I, when I became a Christian, I was saved in a church where uh, doctrine, theology, thinking about God wasn't prized. That wasn't an endeavor that was encouraged by, by very many people. So I was saved in a church where I, I knew very little about God, and the members and leaders around me knew very little about God. But this is the reality of where I happened to be converted. <clears throat> With that being said, um, I, I became much more 
convinced that what was important wasn't exactly getting our ideas about God perfectly in line, perfectly correct, but I was much more convinced that, that what Christians needed to be about was less about um, thinking about God and more about living for Him. So I became what you would probably call an emergent Christian or a social justice-driven Christian. This was all I cared about, was social justice, feeding the poor, taking care of widows, building wells in Africa, these, these kinds of things. And hear me, these are wonderful, wonderful things, but I was not pursuing them in a wonderful way. My tool to pursue them and my tool to get others to pursue them with me was guilt and manipulation. I had stats memorized and pictures to show you to make you feel terrible about your life to get you to care about the things that I cared about. That's who I was. Doctrine was nothing for me. Then, after years of this, in some way, I don't recall how or exactly when. I know I was a freshman in college, but I can't remember how. I was sitting on my bed in my dorm room, and I was given a book. A book that to this day, outside of the Bible, has transformed my life more than any other book. It utterly wrecked me. My life was going one way, and after this book, it was going another way. That book was the book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. I read it my freshman year of college, and my life has never been the same. This J.I. Packer, this old man, old, old man, talked about a God who was bigger than mine. His God was grander than mine. His God was worthy of more worship than mine. His God was more courage-inducing than mine. His God was more missions-inducing than mine. His God was more humiliating-inducing than mine. I literally remember as I flipped the pages of that book, that old, worn-out copy of Knowing God that I had, I remember thinking to myself explicitly, Dr. Packer worships a different God than I do, and I want his God. It changed me. It started a love for theology. I learned, I started to learn at least, how to learn. I started thinking carefully for the first time in my Christian life, digging into books, talking with mentors, reading people who had been dead for hundreds of years, who I would have never cared to read just a week before, listening to lectures, listening to sermons in a new way, talking to my peers, spending time actually meditating on Scripture and digging through it and working through it. I became a theologian. I saw God bigger than I had ever before, and I wanted more of that. It became addicting to me. During that process, I learned something that has utterly shaped who I am today, and it still drives me every day. And this is what I want you to think about when you think about theology. Here's what I learned. There are three things in my life that are intricately connected. There are three things in your life that are intricately connected that you could not pull apart no matter how hard you tried. And it's this. I learned that the more I learned about God the more I saw him as beautiful. I tr- we, we truly believe, I'll speak on behalf of our pastors here, that, that Jesus, that God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, are the true and most real picture of beauty there ever is. And so the theological task is getting at seeing him clearly. And when we see him as clear, we'll see him as beautiful. So as I studied, as I thought, as I learned, I saw God as beautiful. The more I saw him as beautiful, the more my affections were stirred for him. The more I loved him, the more there was like this uncontrollable worship welling up in me because I saw him for big as as he was and grand and beautiful. And as my affections grew for him, I noticed that I started to gladly obey him. It no longer became a a white-knuckled submission that I have to, to bear my way through the Christian life. I started wanting 
to obey him. The more I learned, the more I treasured, the more I gladly obeyed. Your mind, your affection, and your obedience are more connected than you might think. This shows the urgency of the theological task. It is one that Paul writes to Timothy about, one that Paul writes to Titus about, and one that we're going to be reading about. So hear me. If you need a theme for this sermon, it would be this. All Christians should embark on a lifelong endeavor of learning theology, the study of God, in order to know God deeper, see the gospel more clearly, and see truth and reality in a more beautiful way. And all of this should lead to worship, missions, and obedience. Let me just read that again. All Christians should embark on a lifelong endeavor of learning theology in order to know God deeper, see the gospel more clearly, and see truth and reality in a more beautiful way. And all of this should lead to worship, missions, and obedience. So then I've told you about it. Now let Paul tell you about it. Look at your Bible. Titus 1. I'm just going to read through it real quick and we'll walk through it. (coughs) For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to to be taught. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit. For any good work. Keep in mind, this is coming off of the tales of the last paragraph, what we did two weeks ago, where Paul is writing to Titus about what the qualifications of an elder are. So then, he's now juxtaposing that, that paragraph that we went over two weeks ago and this one. What a good pastor is, what a right pastor is, what a godly elder is, and what false teachers are. You can see it, the parallels. He's contrasting them. So just look at this. Verses... Uh, 10 through 11 alone. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. So just in there, we have four major juxtapositions between the false teacher and the godly pastor. The false teachers are insubordinate, verse 10. But good pastors, look at verse 6. They're they're called to be not open to the charge of insubordination. So false teachers are insubordinate. Godly pastors are told to not be open to even that charge. Another one, false teachers, verse 10, are empty talkers and deceivers. Whereas good pastors, right pastors, are called to, in verse 9, hold firm the trustworthy word. Another one, verse 11, false teachers teach for shameful gain. Whereas the right pastor in the paragraph before, in verse 7, is called to not be greedy for gain. False teachers teach what they ought not to, verse 11. While good pastors must give, must be able to instruct in sound doctrine, verse 9. So there's a major juxtaposition between these, these good pastors and these false teachers. Paul wants you to see the difference 
And he wants Titus to see the difference. So Titus can be a good pastor. And he wants Titus's people to hear the difference. So they can know, I shouldn't be listening to that guy. I should be listening to these guys. They are fundamentally different. And the difference between the false teacher and the godly pastor is right doctrine and right practice. So let me point out just a few more things, three more things about these false teachers that we see in this verse. Number one, look at, look at verse 10. <clears throat> For there are many, stop there, there's many of them, not just a few of them, there's many of them. And you hear me, all three of these things I think are really, really key to our culture today. There are many, not just a few, many. I think this is an important point for us when we think about false teaching in the church today. We don't have to look far, right? It's rampant. False teaching is everywhere in the church today. And hear me, let this be a warning to you as one of your pastors. I want to actually give you a pastoral warning about this. Have a discerning ear. Be discerning, especially for the sake of your family. Have a discerning ear. Know your scriptures, know your gospel, know your God. Don't listen to false teachers who have empty talk, though there are many of them. Be discerning. Watch carefully what you and your family consume. And hear me, let me just go on record and say this. This might sound an exaggeration, but I, I, I believe this. I would say that most, not just many, but most books, sermons, and preachers that would take on the name Christian would fall in this category of false teachers. Most of them. That's a lot. That's a bold saying. There are thousands and thousands of Christian books published every year. I'll say that most of them are unhelpful. Be discerning. Find authors, preachers, music, pastors that are going to make little of themselves and much of Jesus Christ and his word. Find those thinkers who will press you deeper into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And instead of demand being praised and honored themselves, they would demand of you to worship Jesus. Find those type of thinkers, those kind of authors. Number two. So one, there's many of them. Two, Paul says in the same verse uh, that, that most of these are coming from the circumcision party. Right? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. What this means is that many of them were probably converted Jews who were coming into the, the churches in uh, Crete, and they were telling them, listen, faith in Jesus is good, but you still must be circumcised to be right with God. They're, they're trying to add a little, a little thing to the gospel, a little ritual from their Jewish faith, they want to bring it into the Christian, their Christian faith now. Paul hates this. He hates it. But uh, we, we are going to preach through the book of Galatians sometime this year, which that's my favorite book of the entire Bible, so I hope you're as excited as I am to go through the book of Galatians. And in that book, Paul is dealing with this circumcision party as well. Those who want to retain circumcision from the Jewish faith and bring it into Christianity and say you must be circumcised to be saved. And he goes rogue on them. He says, literally, that he hopes they slip and finish the job and emasculate themselves. He says that in Galatians. You'll see it. He hates this. 
kind of thing. Because we, what he knows is happening isn't just that they're thinking differently than he is. It's not just they disagree about doctrine, but they're, destro- they're destroying and tampering the gospel. Right? We know that we need nothing apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved. That we were wicked. God is good. He left the place of comfort that he was for all eternity, bore our sins on a cross, died bleeding Death on the cross, buried with our sin, rose to life, left our sin in the grave, and we're united to him. And if we believe and trust in him, our sins will be utterly forgiven. And there's no work involved in this process that we bring forward. And here these false teachers are saying, yeah, faith in Jesus is good. It will definitely help. But you must be circumcised to be truly right with God. Paul will not stand for this. They are trying to add something to the gospel. They want to boast in something that they've done. And remember who they're talking to. They're talking to Paul. The Jew of Jews. A Hebrew of the people of Israel. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We see it in Philippians. He lays out his resume and he says, all of that, man. All of my obedience. All of my zeal. I count it as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. If anyone had room to boast in what they've done, it's Paul. Not these false teachers who want to be circumcised. But he says, no, all of it's rubbish. Because in God's economy of saving the lowest of the low, while they are at their worst in the pit of death, there is no room for boasting in what we've done, only in what Jesus has done. And hear me, church. While we might not be tempted to boast in circumcision, that's actually kind of weird to us. Why would we boast in that? You're more than likely tempted to hold something up before God as your proof of being justified before him. As your proof of saying, look, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm right before you. Look what I've done. I've gone to church since I was five. I give faithfully to my church. I don't curse. I don't drink. I don't do all these things. I'm, I'm right before you. Look, I have proof. If that's what you're doing, if you're holding up anything, if there is anything in your hands trying to prove to God your worth and you're justified, You are making the same mistake as the circumcision party. And hear me, at the end of all things, when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, there better be only gospel in your hands. Only gospel in your hands. For anything else, even the best accomplishments you can muster, will fall helplessly short. There better only be gospel in your hands. Number three, Paul says that these false teachers in verse 11, first four words, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. Let this be another lesson for us and the importance of doctrine. Paul knows what's at stake here is more than just people thinking differently than him or disagreeing with him. He knows that lives and souls are at stake. Look, it says they're upsetting whole families by their false teaching. Whole families are at stake. This is more than just disagreeing about propositions. This is the well-being of people's lives. And Paul gets this. Therefore, these false teachers must be silenced. Now, make no mistake. This sentiment is not going to bode well with the current climate that we live in, our culture. It's not going to bode well. For we live in a world where any assertion that claims to be truthful is seen as arrogant. Any truth claim is seen as arrogant. We live in a world where it's more attractive and much more desired to believe less than more. The less you believe the more attractive it is. The more sure you are in your convictions, the more narrow-minded you'll be made 
out to be. And we live in a world where the most scandalous truth claim you can make is that there is indeed truth. So this understanding of silencing false teachers isn't going to bode well in our type of culture. If you say that your opinion is superior to another opinion, you're committing cultural suicide, especially if that opinion happens to be about religion. Well, Paul doesn't care about our 21st century pitifully inconsistent attempt to redefine truth. He doesn't care. He doesn't give a rip about that. He says these false teachers must be silenced for doctrine in the wrong hands is an unbelievably dangerous weapon. And they must be silenced. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I think this is extremely interesting. Uh, uh, Pastor Josh mentioned this in the, his last sermon, but, but Paul is actually quoting a non-believing uh, poet, basically, here. He's, he's quoting, look, he says, one of the Cretans. So he's quoting one of their own writers. A prophet of their own, he says, says this, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This would be like someone from Parkville saying, everyone who lives in Parkville is, is wretched and terrible. I'm saying that as one of a Parkvillian. Right, so this is one of their own saying this about their own. And Paul is, is drawing on secular uh, literature here to make a statement about, about the, those who are, call themselves Cretans. And then it's not a good one. Always, right? They're always liars, evil beasts. We don't even quite know what that means. And lazy gluttons. This is not a good report. And the reason I think that's interesting that Paul brings up this non-moral lifestyle of the Cretans is because of what he just said about these false teachers. So, so, so hang with me. Just think about this. In the book of Titus, Paul never actually tells us what the false teachers say. He never tells us. We learn things about the false teachers. They're from the circumcision party, right? That's something we've learned so far. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. But he never actually lines out for us what their false teaching said, what it actually was. So we have to kind of imply from what he gives us. And so far, all we have is that they're from the circumcision party, which means this. They wanted to add more to salvation, right? Yes, believe in Jesus, but also be circumcised. They wanted to add more rules, more regulations to salvation. But then he talks about, turns to the Cretans, which seem to be different. They don't want to add more. It seems that their problem is too much license, it's permissiveness. Right? They're lazy. They're gluttons. They're evil beasts. Right? We know that uh, from history, even secular history, that this is one of the most amoral islands or amoral lands um, around. That they, w- they would boast in their sexuality. They would boast in, in their freedom. They, they were mercenaries. They would kill uh, brutally, and, and they would boast about it. So, so, the, so the Cretans are adding more rules. They're living permissively. So it's interesting that Paul takes his turn here. And I think it actually, while it doesn't help us identify exactly what the false teaching was, I think it does help us with this. We see that both legalism and license are both distortions of the gospel. Both legalism that wants to add more, you must do this to be saved, and license which says that because you're saved, do whatever you want to, they're both distortions of the gospel. A theology that says there is... 
anything that needs to be added to the life-saving work of Jesus Christ is non-Christian. It's non-Christian. But so too is the theology that says because we have the gospel, we can live however we want to. They're equally non-Christian. The first is legalism and the second is license and both are lies from hell. Each in its own way will rob you and all Christians of the true joy that comes from trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation and then gladly having every inch of our life conform to that wonderful news. Each of them will rob you of that joy. Let's continue. Verse 13. Thanks for hanging with me. My voice is barely hanging on by a thread. Verse 13. (coughs) This testimony is true. Actually, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul affirms what the Cretan prophet said about his peers. And he keeps going. Look at this. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And he keeps going. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. For to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So he affirms what this prophet is saying. Right? He doesn't come to their, their, their aid. He says, no, that's true. You guys are pretty terrible. They're, they're morally abysmal. And therefore, he says, they need to be rebuked. Now, don't miss what Paul does here. Because I think this is unbelievably beautiful. Pay attention to how Paul keeps weaving in and out of talking about either doctrine, the substance of what's being taught, or the the actions, the lives of the people. He keeps weaving in and out of them as if they're totally interchangeable. All over. He first started rebuking them for what was being taught. He said they're empty talkers. He's rebuking their teaching, what they're verbally saying. Now, he is saying they need to be rebuked for how they live, their actions. And don't miss the fact that he says they need to be rebuked so they can be what? Sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. So rebuke their practice so they can be sound in the faith doctrinally. He says rebuke their lifestyle because they weren't acting right so that they may be sound theologically. Do you see what's happening? In our world, especially in evangelical circles, there has been a detrimental, hear me, this is one of the plagues of my life that I'm going to give my life to crushing. There has been a detrimental dichotomy formed between theology and practice. Things saying, people saying, you must choose. Either be a thinking Christian or a doing Christian. Either love God with your mind or love God with your actions. This is the false dichotomy. And hear me, it is rubbish. It is complete garbage. The Christian faith doesn't offer you the option to either be a careful thinker or a passionate liver. It weaves these two realities in such a way that they are inseparable. And Paul does this all over this letter. Look with me. Look, get your Bibles out and look. Just some other places where Paul is totally comfortable. Listen, he's totally comfortable with using our theological lives and our practical lives synonymously. Look at some of these. 1-1. One, one. He says, knowledge and truth, which accords with godliness. 
1, 5 through 9, when giving a list of qualifications of pastors, he lists practice and doctrine interchangeably. 1, 16, he says the Cretans profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. 2, 1, Paul instructs Titus to teach sound doctrine. Do you see that? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then he lists a bunch of actions. Actions, not, not propositions. 2, 3, Paul, similarly, talking to older women of the church, says to teach what is good. Then he lists a bunch of actions. 2.7. This one's so good, I'm just going to read it. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity. Works and teaching are together. We are not thinking Christians or, or living Christians. We are unmistakably both. Paul will not let his followers fall for the false dichotomy that they are to either pursue theology in the life of the mind or pursue zeal in the life of action. We are people of both mind and action in the Christian faith. Our thinking is intertwined with our passions and our passions are intertwined with our thinking. Anything else is a false dichotomy. And like one of my theological heroes, D.A. Carson said, may all false dichotomies be damned to hell, including this one. Paul ends the first chapter in a devastating line. Look with me at verse 15 and beyond. To the pure, all things are pure. Paul's talking about ritual uh, rites here. Circumcision, food. Uh, the, the Jews had laws as to what they could eat. Certain foods were unclean. Paul says, no, when, when Jesus redeems someone, he redeems them through and through. And nothing defiles, no outside thing defiles the man. Only the heart defiles a man. So to the pure, all things are pure. Circumcision, uncircumcision, both are pure. Red meat, non-red meat, both are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Both, but, now he goes back to the Cretans. But both their mind and their consciences are defiled. And this, this line is, is unbelievably devastating to me. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They're unfit for any good work. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Christian, the life of your mind and the life of your actions are more important than you might dare to dream. They're more interwoven with one another than you might dare to think. And Paul your pastors, and your fellow members are deeply concerned that you know God. You know God. Not just in some facts or some trivia or anything like that, but that you actually know Him. Like intimately know Him. That you would know the Father. That you would actually know the Holy Spirit. And think of the Holy Spirit in terms of relationally. I, I can know him. And think of Jesus relationally, not just as a guy to know some facts about, but, but as a savior to deeply and intimately know. We want you to see beauty. The most beautiful thing in existence is our God. We want you to know him in such a way that your affections are ignited for who he is and what he's done. Especially his work on the cross. Knowing Him in such a way that obedience isn't painful submission, but willing obedience as we follow our Master and our friend who we intimately know, individually and particularly. Hear me, when I was 19 years old, sitting in my dorm room, 
with that $2 used copy of Knowing God in hand, totally worn out, coffee stains, underlined, highlights, evidence of being used by men and women before me who were blessed to read the same book that I did. I read this line, and it shook me. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person does. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? There isn't. Knowing God is the highest end. Glorifying Him and knowing Him is the highest end. So hear me, it is vital that our imaginations be caught, like Packer said, that our allegiances be pledged, lifelong pledged, to a God worth knowing, a God who has bled on a cross and rose from the grave to redeem both our minds and our actions. Let's pray. God, you are good. And I pray on a half of room full of theologians. Man, woman, child, father, mother, son, daughter, uncle, aunt, all of us, theologians. My prayer is that you would make us good ones. Lord, we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 that Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, is commanding that they leave the elementary doctrines and move on to more mature things in the life of the mind. And then he says that they will only do so if you permit it to be so. So God, what we're asking you is to permit it. Would you allow us to leave elementary doctrines and move on to maturity in our minds? Would you allow us to not see the theological task as one of hiding behind books and propositions and paper that are, that are, that are cold and dead and have nothing to do with our faith, but would you allow us to think about you in a way that would lead us to you? Would you allow us not to know you propositionally, but to know you intimately? To see you as worthwhile to think about? And God, would you allow what happens in our minds to make its way to our hearts and make its way to our fingertips as what we've learned about you inflames our affection and our our, our affections for you inflame our actions for you? Would you allow us to never fall for the false dichotomy that says that we have to choose to either be thinking Christians or acting Christians? May we be both to your glory and for the declaration and displaying of the gospel to lost world and to your people. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Every, every week here we, we end in communion and... Uh, um, I mean, I, I, there, there's no better way for us to end every week uh, because what you've, what you've got in, the, in every sermon is, is the, the, the verbal declaration of the gospel and what you're about to get as we come to the table is a, a physical declaring of the gospel, displaying of the gospel. So we, we say this every week, but, but if, if you're a non-Christian, we would ask you not to come to the table and take, but stay in your seat and take Jesus. Hear me, I know and remember what it's like to not have Jesus. 
And I feel the deep joy today of having him. So if you're a non-believer, take him. I actually beg of you. I know it doesn't sound like my voice is frail right now, but I beg of you, trust and believe in the person and work of Jesus. For those of you who have, we invite you to come to the table. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.